This morning in our through the Bible study, we are in Matthew chapter 1. The passage that is going to be looked at this morning is one that we're all familiar with, especially as we move into the Christmas season, because we like to read those passages that deal with the birth of Christ, and this is one of those passages. And let's read starting at verse 18, where Matthew said, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, in Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet, at one point, Juliet asked Romeo, what's in a name? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Of course, the context was that she was a Capulet, he was a Montague, and these families were bitter enemies of each other. And so she's trying to say, look, what, is, what does it matter what a name? Names don't matter because our love transcends family labels, that kind of thing. Well, you know, in a, in a romantic tragedy like Romeo and Juliet, I guess that makes sense. But when you're talking about the Bible, in the Bible, names are very important, very important. Often in the Bible, names convey important attributes or characteristics of the individual bearing that name. For example... When God promised Abram he was going to be the father of a great nation, so numerable they wouldn't be able to be counted, then God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. We know that when um, Isaac had his, well, he didn't have him, his wife Rebecca had the twin boys, uh, the first one was born and he was Harry. So they called him Harry, Esau. Not H-A-R-R-Y, but H-A-I-R-Y, right? Because the kid was really hairy. His brother came out after him, hold on to his heel. Ah, we'll call him Jacob, Jacob, which means heel catcher. Now, of course, if you know anything about Jacob, that name really demonstrated his character. Because all of his life, he was tr- always trying to trip people up to take the advantage. Jacob. Of course, we just studied the book of Joshua. And we uh, studied at one point about Caleb. A very godly man. Caleb's name means wholehearted. And certainly he was wholehearted for the Lord. You know, even the name that God chose to call himself by is extremely significant. The name God gave himself was Yahweh. It was sometimes pronounced Jehovah. And you realize, of course, that Jehovah or Yahweh is a verb. God chose to call himself by a verb. It literally means the becoming one. Because God wants to become whatever we need. So if you need peace, he's your Jehovah Shalom. God is peace. 
If you need provision, he's your Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Very significant, right? So when you talk about what's in a name, biblically speaking, well, in a word, everything. Now, this morning in this passage we are going to be looking at, of course, it contains a prophecy of Messiah's birth, but it is built around a couple of names that he is to be called by. That's the essence of what we're going to be looking at. And uh, let's work our way through the passage, and as we do, we'll focus on these two names and see what they mean and how they give us insight into Messiah's character or his mission. First of all, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So right off the bat now, we're introduced to two Hebrew young people. Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph. We don't know a lot about Mary. The first time we are ever introduced to her, we see her living in the town of Nazareth, which is about 70 miles to the north of Jerusalem. She was probably born and raised there. Uh, her family were, was probably a poor family. We don't get the impression she was, uh, came from wealthy parents at all. We know in Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, and John's Gospel, all three mention that she had a sister named Salome, and Salome, or Salome, was the mother of James and John. So James and John, the fishermen who became disciples and apostles of Christ, were Jesus Christ's first cousins. He didn't know, already know that. We also learn from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, that this young woman had a maturity and a godliness about her that went way beyond her young years. When the angel Gabriel came to her and said that God had chosen her to become the mother of the Messiah, she said, how can this be since I have not ever known a man in that way? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and place within your womb the seed of God. And that Holy One who is to be born is going to be called the Son of God. And here this young woman, who was a virgin and knew what that meant, to be pregnant in that culture without really, you know, it was a scandal, claiming to be a virgin. She said in response to this, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it be done unto me as you have said. She was a remarkably godly, submissive young woman. Well, what about Joseph? We know less about Joseph than we know about Mary. In fact, in the scriptures, Joseph is not recorded as having said any words at all. His character spoke, though, didn't it? We know from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16 that his father's name was Jacob. We also learn in Matthew 13 verse 55 that he was some kind of a craftsman or construction worker. The Greek word is tektone, probably a carpenter. It's possible that both Joseph and Mary were quite young when they were betrothed to each other. It wasn't uncommon back then for a girl to be betrothed to a husband at the age of 12 or 13, and a man not much older, 15, 16 maybe. We have to understand what this betrothal is all about, though. Let me just take a couple of seconds. There were several stages or steps that were involved in a typical Jewish marriage. The first was the engagement period. Most marriages back then were arranged by the fathers of the bride and groom. Many times, uh, while the kids were still quite young, sometimes even before they were born. If your family was close to another family, fathers would often say, look, 
when we have our kids, let's marry them off to each other. So even before the kids were born, sometimes the fathers had already prearranged that their kids would be married to one another. And the engagement amounted to a contract of marriage where the boy and the girl were promised to be given to each other at the proper time by their fathers. That proper time came when they were young teenagers often, and that's where the second stage of a Jewish marriage came into play, the betrothal period. This is what we see going on with, with Mary and with Joseph. At this point, the bride and groom would come together, and sometimes they would meet for the very first time. But the fathers came together primarily so that the, the father of the groom would negotiate then the dowry with the father of the bride. The dowry was sometimes called the bride price. And here's the idea. If the husband happened to die during this betrothal period, the bride was considered a widow. And so part of the money was supposed to be set aside or held by her father in the event of his untimely death, the husband, that she would have means of support. Uh, so it was kind of like a life insurance policy. In case her husband died young, she'd have something to fall back on. Now, during this period, this betrothal period, the couple was considered legally married, and yet the marriage was not consummated, and they didn't yet live together. See, it was his responsibility as the husband now to go to prepare a place for them in his father's house. That's where his inheritance was. So they would typically just, he would go to his father's house and build a room addition on which became their bridal chamber. And when he was done, he would come and get his bride, take her, and they would, be, uh, they would consummate the marriage and go on to live a normal family life together. Now we read in verse 18, it was during this betrothal period, before Joseph and Mary had consummated their marriage, that she was found to be pregnant. Now Matthew tells us what had happened, that the Holy Spirit had planted the seed of God in Mary's womb. But at first, Joseph didn't know what had happened. I'm sure Mary then eventually told him. But put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment here. Guys, what would you have thought if your fiancé had come to you pregnant saying she was still a virgin, but she had been impregnated with the seed of God through the Holy Spirit without having sex? How many people would, how many guys would actually believe that story? One author put it this way, Can you think of a greater test of a man's love for a woman? On the one hand, he might have imagined a wicked tryst with another man. But this was not the Mary that Joseph knew and loved. On the other hand, how could he really believe the story she told him about the angelic announcement? Joseph didn't know what to think. His heart was broken, his plans ruined, his pride bruised, but he still loved this Hebrew maiden." End quote. In fact, he loved her so much, he didn't demand his rights. He didn't seek revenge. You see, Jewish law said that adultery was punishable by stoning. And so legally, Joseph had every right to accuse Mary openly and publicly as an adulteress and then to demand justice by having her stoned. He had every right to do that. A lot of men would have done that. Instead, we read in verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, the Greek means a righteous man. Joseph was a believer. Joseph being a righteous man and not wanting to make a public example of Mary was minded to put her away secretly. You know, there is not one word recorded in the New Testament that Joseph ever spoke. We don't have one word recorded in all the New Testament that Joseph said anything. We know he talked, of course. 
But his character speaks loudly, doesn't it? Well, that was the predicament of Joseph. Next, we see the pronouncement of the angel, starting in verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. And listen, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is the contraction of the larger Hebrew word uh, Yehoshua or Jehovah-shua, which literally means Jehovah is salvation. God wants to become to us whatever we need. The greatest need we had was for salvation. So God became our Jehovah-shua, our Jesus, right? Now, when Jesus was born into this world, Rome was in power. And the Roman government ruled with an iron fist in all areas and including religious areas. Although, listen to me, as long as you were willing to acknowledge and declare Caesar was Lord, they didn't really care what other gods you worshipped after that. They were very polytheistic. So they, they could care less what gods you worship personally as long as you declared Caesar was Lord of all. But for the Jews who were fiercely monotheistic as the people of the true and living God, this was absolutely unacceptable. Not to mention, of course, that paying taxes to Rome and having these pagan Gentiles living in and controlling their land was more than many of them could bear. And it gave rise to several radical groups. These were very fiercely nationalistic and even violent groups, such as the Zealots. Jesus had one zealot on his team. It's amazing that you had a zealot and a sellout, all right? Simon was a zealot, fiercely in opposition to Rome. Matthew had been a tax collector who worked for the Roman government. It's amazing how in Christ people come together, right? Now, the Jews living at that time had been taught from the time they were just little children that when Messiah came, he would deliver them from Roman oppression, that he would chase Rome out of the land of Israel, that he would set up a new kingdom where he himself would rule from Jerusalem over the whole earth. You have to understand that mindset. That was the mindset of Jesus' disciples. Remember on Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode up the Mount of Olives in a little donkey, right? What were his disciples crying as they lined the road? They were crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. They were crying, save now! But they weren't asking the Lord to save them from their sins. What they were saying is, Lord, we believe that you're the Messiah. Now, we have been taught from the time we were little kids that when Messiah came, he would save us from Roman oppression. He would bring this glorious kingdom to the earth, a paradise where the Messiah would reign over the entire world, and we as the Jews would be his prime ministers. We want that, Lord. We have been waiting for that all our lives. Save us from Roman oppression. Bring the kingdom now. See, as you understand the context, you realize there was no recognition of their sin being spoken of here. There was no repentance from their sin, right? They were All they wanted was for Jesus to bless their lives on a material 
and physical level, but spiritual things were not all that important to them. I'm not saying that they didn't go to temple. A lot of people go to church that are not that religious. It's kind of a strange thing, you know. There's a lot of people that go to church. Why? Because they've always gone to church. Because it's what they do on Sunday morning or Saturday night. But if you study their lives throughout the week, they're really not that religious. I mean, they, they don't really bring God into their daily lives. They don't really think about the Lord as they're making decisions or whatever, running their businesses and so on. And I'm not advocating for religion because I'm not very religious either. I have a relationship with Christ. Christianity is not a religion. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. I grew up with religion. I couldn't wait to get out of it. And when I finally understood what it meant to be a Christian, that it was giving my life to Christ where he would come inside and have a relationship with me, it was a whole different ballgame. But there's a lot of people today, just like in the Jews' day back then, it's common for people today to look at Jesus as a social savior, as a problem solver, as the one who is going to deliver them from the headaches and the heartaches of life, you know, the one who they need to get, help them find a job or heal their marriage or something like that. I'm not saying that that is necessarily a wrong thing to come to the Lord and ask him to do. But if that's all he is to you, as a problem solver, as a social savior, you know, you got churches today who think that Jesus came to be the great environmentalist. That his whole deal is to save us from global warming. And, and that's all he cared about was the environment. Others say, you know, he came that he might give us prosperity. He's the investment banker, Jesus Christ. Some think he's the great problem solver, you know. Jesus the psychologist, the first century Dr. Phil. I mean, the one who's going to help me with my emotional needs and take away all the headaches of life. Look. We all have problems. Let me tell you this. When you accept Christ, a lot of the problems that you have are solved immediately. But guess what? You get a whole batch of new ones. Because now you got an enemy that's out to get you, the devil. All right. I mean, this idea that come to Christ and, man, it's going to be great from here on out. Well, it's going to be great in the sense that you know the Lord and he's got a place prepared for you in heaven. But between here and there is going to be a lot of trouble and a lot of fighting and warfare and, and things like that. We have, to be, we have to understand that, all right? But look, the greatest problem facing the human race today is not global warming. It's not world poverty, hunger, disease. I mean, those are all important things. I'm not, uh, you know, global warming, put that on the side. Uh, but, you know, world hunger and sickness and things like that, you know, we want to see people fed and clothed and housed and so on. It's just that that's not why Jesus came. He came to preach the gospel. And in the course of preaching the gospel, he did meet physical needs. But let's not confuse why he came. He came to deal with the greatest problem facing the human race, which is and always has been the problem of sin. The problem of sin. And before God can save a person from this present evil world system, I mean, the injustice, the violence um i mean everywhere you look it's just it's just sick what we see today in the world the immorality and so on but before jesus can save a person from this and bring us to a paradise someday he first has to save people from their sin but here's the problem most people are not willing to acknowledge they're sinners 
So how is Jesus going to save them from their sins if they don't even acknowledge their sinners? Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. He said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. By saying that, he wasn't saying that there are people out there who are righteous who don't need me. He was saying there are people out there who think they're righteous and they don't think they need me. I've come to minister to those who know they're sinners. That's why he hung out with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, uh, and others like them. People who were willing to acknowledge they were sinners. Paul said, Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, Paul said. Jesus came the first time to save us from our sins. When he comes the second time, he will come to save us from all the bad stuff in the world. In fact, he's going to do it by establishing a new kingdom in this world, where he will rule over this world visibly from Jerusalem. It will be a paradise that we will live with him in then forever. But right now, at his first coming, he came to deal with the problem of sin. And again, as I talk with people, and I'm sure you have too, you try to give them the gospel, a person can't come to the Savior who doesn't see themselves as sinners. We go out witnessing to people. And um, we see Proverbs 20, verse 6, all over the place. Every man proclaims each his own goodness. In other words, you talk to people, here's the, what they say, I'm a good person. You, you say, when you die, where are you going to go? I'm going to go to heaven. Why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. I see. Well, can I ask you a few questions that will determine whether or not you are a good person? Sure. Ever lied? No, I've never lied. I know you're lying right now. I mean, come on. What, what do you mean, ever lied? I mean, I've lied. I admit that many times. You ever lusted after somebody? Well, sure. Well, Jesus said if you lust after somebody, you've committed adultery in your heart. You ever hated anybody? Yeah, who hasn't? Jesus said then you've committed murder in your heart. I mean, when you stand before God in the day of judgment, do you think he's going to call you a good person or a guilty person? I guess a guilty person. Does that bother you? I suppose it does. I mean, do you think he lights you to heaven after sending you to hell? I think he'd have to probably send me to hell. Well, I've got good news for you. God so loved you that he sent his son to die for you, that you would not have to go to hell, but would have eternal life. But you know, it's amazing as we witness to these young, we witness to a lot of young people especially. It's interesting how at the beginning of the conversation, they're kind of laughing and goofing around and, you know, kind of, okay, who are these people, you know, talking to us about God, you know. And as we begin to talk about the issue of sin and begin to show them, they're not good people. None of us are. We're all sinners. All of a sudden, their countenance goes from kind of flippant, kidding around to deadly serious. As the reality dawns on them, they're not good people. They're guilty before God. And guilty people don't go to heaven, they go to hell. Look, heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. And you will never receive forgiveness for your sins if you don't acknowledge you're a sinner and in need of a Savior. And yet Proverbs 30, verse 12 says there is a generation, and I think we're living in that generation right now, there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed of its filthiness. There are people today running around saying, I'm a good person, and yet they have not been washed of their sin. Then you have those who say, well, I'm not that great, but I go to church a lot. I help at the local food pantry. I'm out there helping little ladies across the street, you know, I'm doing a lot of good stuff. Proverbs 
20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. The Bible says you cannot cleanse away your sin. I don't care how many good works you do. I don't care how much you give to the church or how much you help the poor and whatever it might be. What does the old hymn say? What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's where it is. All right. As we move through our text, we see how that Matthew, and remember now, we started this study last week. We said Matthew was a, is a Jew, was a Jew, and that his theme or his purpose in writing this gospel, he is writing it to the Jews, wanting to present to them Jesus, their Messiah. Well, if you're going to do that, you better be able to prove that this Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. So Matthew's gospel, more than all the others combined, you'll read statements like, Jesus did this that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying. Over and over you'll read that quote, because Matthew is trying to tie Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies to prove he's the Messiah. We see it here, verse 22. So all this was done, Matthew's commenting now, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This is the second name we want to focus on. You shall call his name Jesus, right? And now they shall call him Emmanuel. Now the prophecy Matthew quotes is Isaiah 7, verse 14. And much controversy, if you've ever taken the time to study this, much controversy has swirled, swirled around this prophecy of the virgin giving birth. In fact, liberal theologians who deny the virgin birth are quick to point out that the Hebrew word translated virgin in Isaiah 7.14 is Alma. And they say the word Alma, strictly speaking, means a young woman of marriageable age. And therefore, they say, doesn't have to mean a virgin. Let me just say this to you. The word Alma is never used in the Old Testament to speak of a married woman. So that only leaves two other options. This Alma, this one spoken of in Isaiah 7.14, must either be A, a young woman who conceived a child out of wedlock, or B, a virgin. Now God said in Isaiah, this is going to be a sign to you. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and so on, right? Now, let's be honest, folks. An unmarried woman who has a child out of wedlock is not something unique, even back then. And doesn't serve as a sign of anything, really, if you think about that, right? Furthermore, the word Alma always indicates a virgin every other time in the Old Testament it's used. In fact... Martin Luther offered a hundred guilders to anyone who could show any other place in the Old Testament where the word Alma is translated young woman rather than virgin. Finally, though, for us who are evangelicals, all the controversy is put to rest by how Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he chose the Greek word Parthenos for virgin. And everyone agrees, every scholar in the world agrees, Parthenos, the Greek word Parthenos, always and only means virgin. Now, hang on to that, okay? Because I 
need to emphasize that for a reason. We'll get back to it in just a moment. But in these verses, we have another seeming controversy. It says, The virgin shall be with child, bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. The question is, where in the New Testament is Jesus Christ ever called Emmanuel? It says here, they shall call him Emmanuel. But where in the New Testament is Jesus ever called by that name? Look, Jesus is his name. Jesus is his name. It means Jehovah is salvation. He was given that name, of course, because he came to save us from our sins. Christ is his title and means anointed one. The Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, means exactly the same thing. Messiah, Christ, mean exactly the same thing. Anointed one. What does that mean? It means the one that God anointed to be the King, Messiah, and Savior of Israel, and the whole world that would come to believe in Him. So what about this Emmanuel thing? In the Scriptures, people are often given names that are not proper names. In the Scriptures, people will sometimes have two and three names, right? They're not all proper names. Some of them are descriptive names or nicknames, you might say. Emmanuel is not a proper name, but is one of those descriptive names indicating who he is in relation to us. He is Emmanuel. What does that mean? He is God with us. Look, the reason the virgin birth is so important, okay? And you know, sometimes we will take a little extra time to dig into the doctrinal things of a passage. Because doctrine is so important if you're going to live your Christian life. The reason the virgin birth is so important is because, listen, he can't be Emmanuel, God with us, unless he was virgin born. Why? Because as we already said last week, the sin was passed along from the father to the children. You see, I don't get that. That's the way God designed it. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all we made alive. The sin was passed down. Original sin and the sin nature were passed down from the father to the children. If Jesus would have had an earthly father, he wouldn't have been born sinless. If he wasn't born sinless, he couldn't have been the sacrifice for our sins because sinners cannot die for sinners. If he had an earthly father, he would be just another man. But because God was his father, sin did not pass from Adam to Christ. He was born sinless. He was unique. He was the God-man. The only one who could have died for our sins because only God himself is sinless. Only God could have become a man. You say, well, angels are sinless. They're good angels, yes, but angels can't die for human beings. It was a man that blew it and it was going to have to be a man that redeemed us. And so we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, another title for Jesus Christ before the incarnation. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And then John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when the Word grew, when Jesus grew, at one point He came to John the, uh, John the Baptist to be baptized. And John, looking at Jesus coming to Him to be baptized, turned to His disciples and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the only sacrifice for sin that could cleanse us from our sins completely. 
Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So folks, unless we could call him Emmanuel, God with us, we couldn't call him Jesus because he never could have died for our sins. In other words, if he wasn't the Emmanuel, God with us, he could never be our Savior. He would just be another man. See, you realize these, these names, one a proper name, one a descriptive name, are very important because it gives us insight into who he was. Jesus came to die for our sins, but he wasn't just a man. He was the God-man, God with us. Very important point. And the reason I bring this up is that you would be absolutely shocked and amazed at how many professing Christians today don't believe in the virgin birth. I don't know if they realize the ramifications of what they claim to believe. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he could not be God with us. He wouldn't be God. God is not a sinner. God can never sin. God can't be born a sinner. He would just be another man. I'm just shocked when I see some of these surveys among professing Christians, churchgoers, are asked, do you believe in the virgin birth? No, I don't. Shocking number of people. I don't know. 70%, 80%? This includes denominational people and everything, you know. You'd be shocked to know how many professing Christians don't believe Jesus was sinless. Well, he must have sinned a little bit, they say. Man. You know, I realize that, you know, church is not supposed to be a seminary class where all we do is dig out all these doctrinal things. But you know what? If we don't have a solid foundation for our faith, what are we doing here? Then, then all we have is happy talk. You know, People gravitate to churches that engage in happy talk. I want to come to church to get a big hug from God. Hey, you know, the Lord loves you. He would love to hug you. And often does, right? I, mean, I give messages that are devotional too, obviously. And you'll hear some of those as we go through this uh, study. But you know... This is doctrinal right here today. This is important stuff. This is not superfluous. This is not, you know, side stuff. This is the main stuff. If you stumble at this point and don't believe that Jesus is God in human form, you are in big trouble. How can you possibly put your faith in a human being who was flawed, sinful, and not born of a virgin? Doesn't even make sense to me. So unless we call him Emmanuel, God with us, we couldn't call him Jesus because he could never have saved us from our sins. Now, let's wrap this up. We read in verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let me give you a little footnote. Joseph apparently finished the bridal chamber, came back, got married, and they consummated the marriage after Jesus was born. They waited until Jesus was born before he knew her. That was just a biblical way of saying before they had sexual relations together. So Jesus came first. Joseph waited until Jesus was born. After he was born, they went on to have normal relations that any husband and wife had. And we learn in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 6, that Mary and Joseph had 
four sons. Their names are mentioned in that passage. And it says, and Jesus had sisters, plural. So possibly, we know at very least two or more. So we know that Joseph and Mary had at least six children after Jesus was born. Six children. Just to throw a little footnote out there for you, all right? If you've got Roman Catholicism in your background as I do, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. The Bible says clearly she and Joseph had children after Jesus was born. All right, look, we're done, but let me just, I don't want to leave you with all this head knowledge and doctrinal stuff, even though it's good. Let's try to make it practical, too. You know, we all celebrate the incarnation, especially we're getting close to that time of year, right, Christmas time, where we all celebrate the incarnation. How that the Word became flesh. How that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. The one promised to us many centuries earlier in the Garden of Eden, God first promised the Redeemer would come. 4,000 years later, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born on this earth. He was literally God with us. We praise the Lord for His kindness in sending His Son to dwell with us. In fact... The night before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples, I'm going to be going away soon. And where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. But I'm going to come back to get you. Where was he going? He was going to prepare that what? That place, that bridal chamber. He's coming back to receive us someday, to get us. And to bring us to heaven, where we're going to then officially be married to him forever. But he said, I'm going away, and you can't come with me, not yet. But I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. When I go back to the Father, I'm going to pray the Father. He's going to send another helper, the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit will come and be with you. And then, when people open their hearts to me, he will come in them. See, on Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out in the whole world, right? The Spirit of God is with unbelievers. That's not enough, though. The Spirit of God is with unbelievers trying to draw them into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Trying to get them to surrender their life to Christ. To repent of their sins. To stop being rebels. Okay? To stop being rebels against the Word of God, the will of God, and the work of God. Once they surrender their life to Christ, the Spirit of God moves in them, and now they are born of the Spirit no longer of the cursed family of Adam, and Adam all die. Now they belong to the family of God in Christ. All should be made alive. What am I saying? I'm saying it's not enough to go to church and just be with Jesus, hang out with him. He wants you to give control of your life to him. He wants to come inside of you and take up residence. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you surrender your life to him. Now, look, when you do that, Jesus has promised us once you invite me in, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be there. I'm never too busy for you to talk with me, draw strength from me. I mean, I'll always be with you. Now, we all know that theologically. But, you know, as times get tougher and tougher and things get darker and darker and more difficult, we're going to have to remind ourselves of that practically every day. That the Lord is with us. Even if we go through the roughest times in our life, even if we face sickness, even if we face financial ruin, even if we're without a job, even if our marriage unfortunately crumbles, God is still with us. 
He will never leave us nor forsake us. And because He's always with us, He is always there for us to turn to, to draw strength from. We have to understand that God sent His Son to be with us. And ultimately inside of us, when we give control of our life to Him, and He wants to always govern us. He wants to always guide us. He wants us, as, as Peter said, uh, cast all your cares upon Him because He cares about you. He's never too busy for us. We don't have to make an appointment. His door is always open to His children. And we need to draw our strength from Him every, every day. We need to understand that as things get tougher and tougher, our God is capable of doing the impossible. Didn't the angel Gabriel say that to Mary when he announced that she was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah and she said, how can this be since I've never known a man? And Gabriel said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Now, I don't know what you're facing problem-wise, but I'll tell you what, I don't think it compares to the problem of a woman who has never had sexual relations getting pregnant. I mean, that is a miracle. Our God is a miracle-working God. We need to keep our eyes on Him. And yes, today was more doctrinal than, than devotional, but we have to know doctrine. The Bible says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm sorry to say, because of all the happy talk in churches today, where people just want warm fuzzies, you know, give me a teddy bear and a hug and I'm happy, come to church, that's my whole concept of the church. Teddy bears and hugs, look. All that happy talk is dumb people down doctrinally. Churches don't talk about doctrine too much anymore. It's doctrine for dummies when they come to church. Look, I've purposed in my heart, I was never going to teach down to you guys because I don't like to be teached down to myself. Don't treat me like a kindergartner. I want to know the deep things of God. And I'm hoping you guys do too. So as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, there's going to be many practical, devotional topics we'll cover. But when we come to a passage that is deeply uh, doctrinal in the sense it teaches us some of the foundational principles of our faith, we're going to spend some time with that. Because when we stand before the Lord, we want to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servants. You are faithful to my word. You knew it, you studied it, and you lived it. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Forgive us, Lord, for approaching it in such a shallow and superficial way as so many do today. And then you hear people say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus was virgin born. Or I'm a Christian, I don't believe he was sinless. Or I'm a Christian, I don't believe Jesus is the only way to the Father. Lord, we are living in very desperate times. We pray, Lord, that you will baptize this church afresh in your spirit. And give us a hunger for your word like we've never known before. That we may feed on it. Build our lives upon it. And be able to defend it. Because these are dark, demonic days that seek to attack the truth of your word. Give us grace to continue in it. That it would set us free from all the errors of the devil. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.